How many of you are very well into the Christmas shopping already? How many of you have it done? Wow, some of you are just... It doesn't surprise me Nathan has it done. It doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> Nathan is organized and ready. He's he former Boy Scout, always prepared. So, Well, we're well into the Christmas shopping season now, and I want to remind you of a few things. I want to remind you that the important thing is not what you give. It's not how you wrap it. The important thing during this very special time of year is that you save the receipt. Now, some store owners are saying that this could be the best Christmas ever, the greatest ever. You know what? I always thought the first one was. Huh? Isn't it great to hear all the wonderful Christmas music this time of year? When you were a child, did you ever misunderstand some of the lyrics of the Christmas songs, huh? of the words of the carols? And then when you learned to read and you saw the lyrics written down, you may have been really surprised at what they actually said. Here are some misunderstood lines from Christmas songs that we all know. How about Deck the Halls with Buddy Holly? Or We Three Kings of Porridge and Tar. Or this is one of my favorites, Noel, Noel, Barney's the King of Israel. And then there's the classic with the jelly toast proclaim. Can't you see the kids holding up the jelly toast singing Christmas songs, huh? Or how about, in the meadow we can build a snowman and then pretend that he is sparse and brown. <laughs> or finally, this great lyric that we all know and love very well, while shepherds wash their socks by night. <laughs> so. I, I always got to thank the Thorpes. They, they, they are the most enthusiastic about my silly jokes. So, Larry, you need to get together with these guys. They. <laughs> There's the story of a little boy who was asked to draw a picture of the nativity scene in his Sunday school class, and when the teacher looked at the picture, she noticed a rather large, portly man kind of in the corner of the picture, and she thought that the child had maybe put Santa Claus right there in his rendition of the nativity scene, but she didn't want to embarrass him. So the teacher said, well, I see the baby Jesus, and I see Mary, and I see Joseph, but who's this in the corner? And the boy answered, well, it's round, round John Virgin. <laughs> round John Virgin, mother and child. Language is an interesting and sometimes confusing thing, isn't it? And this actually, believe it or not, has something to do with what I'm going to talk about this morning, what we're going to look at on this third Sunday of Advent, just two weeks before Christmas Day. And the Word of God, names mean something. That's not always true to us as much today, perhaps, though I know some parents do really think about the meaning of the names they give their children. William, for example, I don't know if my parents knew this when they named me William. That's my name, by the way. It's not Bill. Bill is a nickname means protector. Jason means healer. Jason's not here. He's upstairs. Um, Joel means Jehovah is God, or it can mean strong-willed. Is that true, Ruth? Pretty much. Okay. Diana means divine. Dorothy means gift of God. So in the word of God, we often see there, are, there is great significance in the names. And in Matthew 1.21, the angel of the Lord told Joseph this about Mary. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Let's be sure to note something important in this passage. Matthew notes that his name will be Jesus, but why? Why not Skippy or Raul or Bill for that matter? Well, the angel tells us because he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. And you might ask, well, what does that have to do with his name? Well, Jesus' name means the Lord saves. That's why this morning's message is titled, The Promise Has a Name. Now, we've just endured what seems like years of promise in the just-ended election season. Aren't we all glad it's over? We've heard a lot of promises, and we've also heard a lot about liars. Sometimes people don't keep promises not because they're liars, but because they don't have the real power or ability to keep certain promises. Now, if you make a promise you can't keep, and you know that you can't keep it, that may make you a liar. But many promises are no doubt difficult or almost impossible to fulfill. Some of the promises we've heard from politicians during the last couple of years can make us cynical because they can seem self-serving or pandering. But now, as we mark another Christmas season, it's very appropriate to take a closer look at what promises look like in Scripture. And very specifically, to look at one promise that's older than time the promise of the coming Savior. During this Christmas season, it's appropriate to remember some key things about Jesus, whose birth we celebrate. Just as Jesus was God in the flesh, he was the very embodiment of the maker of the universe. Jesus was also the embodiment of all that God promised his people, of all that God promised the world. We read in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Scripture shows us that Jesus is the complete fulfillment of that promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. Let me read that to you. Just as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Don't you love guarantees? Especially guarantees that you have a sense will really be uh, fulfilled. There's no more sure guarantee than the one that comes from the maker of the universe. The Word of God, our Bible, is a book full of promises. Singer Michael Card wrote a song called The Promise, and he wrote a little Christmas devotional on this theme several years ago. He wrote, Christianity is founded on a promise. Faith involves waiting on a promise. Our hope is based on a promise. Promises are made with words. That part of myself that goes with every promise is given to you through my words. 
Our God is a great maker of promises. His word, our Bible, is a collection of the promises. Many of these concern Jesus, who came to be known as the promised one. Through all these promises, God was trying to give something of himself to Adam and to Israel and finally to us. The Bible tells us that when the promised one came, the Lord poured all of himself into him. What a costly thing it can be to make a promise. It cost Jesus his life. The fulfillment of this promise of God had a name, and his name is Jesus. And so this is where that language issue that we looked at a minute ago comes in. Jesus was the embodiment, he was the incarnation of the promise of God to save us. Yes, he used language, but his life and his very existence as God in human form, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, spoke as clearly as his actual words. Jesus is the living Word. I believe that's part of God's plan. The fact that Jesus is the living word, that he lived among us, that he walked among us, that he related to us. I believe that's part of God's plan to minimize or remove some of the ambiguity and confusion and misunderstanding that language alone sometimes causes, as we saw with some of our opening illustrations. Now, don't get me wrong. Words are very important. Why else would Jesus be named Jesus, and that meant something, and it meant something important. That's important. A name is a word, and we're grateful to have God's written word. But I think we can see that the incarnation was a critical component of God speaking to us about his plan of salvation for us. The fulfillment of God's promise of salvation had a name. We name some of our promises too, don't we? There's the oath of office that public officials take. There are those promises that we make when we get married, and we call those wedding vows. There are various pledges, such as the Pledge of Allegiance. Political parties have platforms, and those include not only promises, but the position that they take on various issues. There's a columnist named Dave Barry. Anybody familiar with Dave Barry? He's one of my all-time favorites, and he was a fake candidate for president in most of the last several elections. And he gave us some examples of his platform. And here's his platform on taxes. I think you'll like this. I like it. He said, a lot of my opponents have been going around spouting harebrained pie-in-the-sky tax promises that promise something for nothing. Well, I say it's time for a reality check. I favor a practical, fiscally sound, two-pronged, flat tax system as follows. Prong one, everybody would pay less. Prong two, you personally would pay nothing. Don't you love that? Man, I'm voting for him. He's my write-in candidate. That seems to be the kind of promise we get from the world, though, isn't it? Often they're promises that are truly impossible to fulfill, as much as we might like them to be true. Jesus' name was a promise. The Lord saves. In this passage we just read from 2 Corinthians, he's called God's yes. He's also called God's amen. Isn't that a cool thing? He's God's yes to the promise of redemption and all the other related promises. And that's reiterated in that he is not just yes, but he's amen. The message paraphrase of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, which we read a little bit ago, says, whatever God has promised gets stamped with the yes of Jesus. 
The great commentator Matthew Henry noted this about this passage of Scripture. He said, these promises are the promises of the God of truth. They are made in Christ Jesus, the Amen, the true and faithful witness, and they are confirmed by the Holy Spirit. He is in our hearts as a deposit. A deposit secures the promise and is part of the payment. A look at the words that Paul used in this passage of scriptural, Scripture is helpful. The original language of the word yes is a stronger affirmation than we would normally think of. In other words, it's not just yes. Okay, It means yes, probably with an exclamation point. It implies even so, surely, and adding the word amen to it only strengthens the force of this. The Greek word amen is of Hebrew origin, and figuratively it means surely, or so be it, or trustworthy. And more literally, it means firm. In Hebrew, it means sure, and its root word means to render or be firm or faithful, to trust or believe, to be permanent. You get the idea there? Amen functioned as a positive affirmation at the end of a prayer, just like we use it today. Jesus became the amen and the yes to all of the biblical promises of a truly faithful God. Jesus is a firm yes. He's not a definite maybe. The promise has a name. Jesus is also referred to as the amen in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, speaking of Jesus the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Another passage of Scripture looks at the double affirmation, the double assurance of God's promises as well. In many ways, this passage we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, is almost a parallel passage and expands on the idea that we read in 2 Corinthians 9 a moment ago. Beginning with verse 12 of Hebrews 6, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Aren't those words great? Anchor, firm, secure. That's what our hope is. In 2 Corinthians, our assurance of God's fulfillment of his promise was made doubly sure by noting that Jesus is not only the yes, but also God's amen. In Hebrews 6, just as it's seen in verse 18, the two unchangeable things we read about, first there's the promise itself, which considering who's making it probably should be enough. But if that's not enough, the promise is reinforced with an oath. Think of the significance of this. God accommodated himself to the human custom of taking an oath. 
And this not only added to the assurance of the validity of the promise, but it gave us hope and security that God would do what he said he would do. In this passage in Hebrews, this is shown as the incentive that Abraham had to believe in God's promise. Another interesting note is the verse that begins this passage that we just read in Hebrews, verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 12 of Hebrews 6. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The encouragement to persevere we see there. It given added incentive by assuring us of the absolute trustworthiness of these divine promises. It's just as if the writer of Hebrews was saying, this is the Bill Sullivan translation, in case none of you have that in your libraries. You can count on this promise no matter how long you have to wait. You can count on this promise no matter how long you have to wait. And then we're reminded of Abraham and how long he did wait to see the initial fulfillment of God's promise to him. So for us to provide a parallel between these two passages, we might say this, God's yes is the fulfillment of the promise itself, the word made flesh. God's amen is his oath, the additional confirmation of his sure intention to fulfill what he has promised. So the two unchangeable things we read about, the yes and the promise itself, and the amen and the oath to fulfill that promise. Said by God, the amen means it shall be so. And said by us, the amen means so let it be. One Bible dictionary looked at the word promise in Scripture like this. The promise plan of God, then, is indeed his own word and plan, both in his person and in his works, to communicate a blessing to Israel and thereby to bless all the nations of the earth. The idea of God's promise of salvation is one of the unifying themes that connects the message and God's work in the Old Testament and the New Testament. One great truth about God's promise is that it includes a declaration of the promise itself, and it also includes the act, the fulfilling of the promise. That is, God's promise is so sure that it encompasses, it includes both the words of the promise as well as the fulfillment of that promise. God's promises are referred to in a larger sense in the Word of God as His covenant. The Old Testament tells of covenants among humans. In biblical language, people cut a covenant with another person or another group of people. It's important to remember that there were always sacrifices which accompanied the covenant making. That's because the Hebrew word for covenant referred literally to the cutting of the pieces of flesh of the sacrifice that the people were making. Breaking covenant conditions meant treason and extreme punishment. It's important to understand this because it seems God modeled his covenants with his people on the kinds of covenants that people made with each other. God's grace in relating to his people by being the initiator of covenants with us is a major theme of the Bible. The Old Testament story can be related as the story of God making covenants with his people and responding to them out of that covenant relationship. The New Testament can be described as the fulfillment of the hope of the Old Testament covenant. 
in establishing God's covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus used the Last Supper as an explanation for his ministry and particularly his death as the fulfillment of the new covenant prophecy. His death represented the shedding of the blood of the new covenant. When we celebrate communion together here every Sunday, we're sharing together the blood of the new covenant, remembering his death as his sacrifice for our sins, the fulfillment of that promise of forgiveness of sins that's in Christ. Another thing we can't forget is that a promise costs something. We don't always think of it that way, but a promise costs something. It costs something of ourselves. When you promise in a wedding vow, for example, to love for richer or poorer or better or worse, you know what? You're not always going to have the rich. You're not always going to have the better to live with. You might sometimes, but you don't. If you have the poor or the worse, and you have that some of the time or all the time, how does that affect your promise? That's where the promise is more costly. So promises cost something. When you promise to be somewhere with your children and something else comes up, it might cost something to keep that promise. When you promise anything, there's always a cost involved. Why do you think Jesus said in Luke 14, 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower? Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? I note all of this to reinforce the importance that God places on promises. I can think of at least three reasons why promises are important to God and because they're, of that they're important to us. First of all, because God has proven himself trustworthy and faithful and able in his promises, we need to know that, we need to remember that. Because of that, we can trust him to fulfill his still unfulfilled promise of coming again. And all the other prophecies, all the other promises, we can trust him to fulfill those that we see in Scripture, such as I will never leave you or forsake you. He's trustworthy. He's proven it. And then all of this understanding of the way that God keeps promises gives us reason to take our own promises more seriously. All God's promises depend on two key things. They depend on God's faithfulness, and they depend on his power to fulfill those promises. We looked at this idea a moment ago. Let's think of it this way. If I promised Paul Brigard, for example, that I would go to work for him so he could have some time off at his job, first of all, he'd probably laugh. But secondly, my promise would be pretty worthless. Paul knows that I cannot follow through on that promise. And it's not because I'm not willing, because I am. It's not because I'm not reliable. I'm a fairly reliable guy but because I'm not able, because I don't have any skills in construction, I don't have any skills in contracting, I'm not that handy. That amen you heard was from my wife of 38 years who knows that I speak the truth. Essentially, that would make me guilty of lying to Paul because I know I can't do what I promised I would do. So here's what we have to ask ourselves about God's promises. Is God faithful? Is he faithful? Or does he always tell the truth when he makes promises? Secondly, we have to ask, is God able? Does he have enough power to keep his promise? These passages of Scripture this morning 
and this season that we're in now of celebrating God's keeping his wonderful promise, that's the big one, in sending his son to redeem us. Answer both of these questions with an unequivocal yes and amen. Because the promise has a name, and his name is Jesus. Jesus showed that God is faithful, and God is able to fulfill his promise. As we noted in Revelation 3.14, Jesus is the great amen. Here's a couple other passages of Scripture that reinforce these ideas. How about Hebrews 10.23? It says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17. Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. So God's able. Hebrews 10.23 says he's faithful and reliable to fulfill what he promises. And Jeremiah 32.17 assures us he is able to fulfill what he promises. Both of these things, both of these things must be true for a promise maker to be a promise keeper. We could cite dozens of additional scriptures to show that God is absolutely faithful to fulfill his promises. And he's absolutely able to do what it takes, whatever it takes to fulfill these promises. Perhaps one reason that we struggle with this is that we live in a world of unkept promises. Nations sign important treaties and then break them at will. Many couples show little regard for their wedding vows. Public officials swear oaths to uphold laws and then they abuse their power to enrich themselves or maybe to protect themselves when they're caught breaking these oaths. We could cite many other examples. In this kind of society, we who are God's people should be known for keeping our promises. There was a man named Robertson McQuilkin and he took that truth very seriously. He was the president of a Christian college. He was a successful author and speaker when his wife developed Alzheimer's at a relatively young age. And when the disease began to influence her ability to function, at the peak of his career, he quit his job to take care of her full time. And he didn't think this was any big deal, but he explained his decision. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part? For him, it was that simple. To him as a believer in Christ, the decision was absolutely a no-brainer. I promised, so I'm going to keep that promise. We have other examples right here at TCF, and I'm going to leave a lot of people out, but I want to cite just one of this this morning. I think of our dear sister Shirley. And she stood by Bob through this debilitating illness. And it's difficult, but she's faithfully loved him and cared for him in some very hard circumstances. Now, many people in our culture might have said, hey, this is not what I signed up for when I got married, and then walked away from their promise. We even had a well-known Christian TV personality a few years back who said it's okay to divorce your wife if she has Alzheimer's, because she's not really there anymore. God help us. How often do we allow someone else's bad behavior 
someone else's bad actions, or just hard circumstances beyond their control, someone's inability to keep a promise impact what we do with our end of the promise. We tend to think of it this way, well, I'll keep my promise if you keep yours. Aren't we glad that our God is not that kind of promise keeper? Or maybe more appropriately, promise breaker. Just this week in our house church, we discussed this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Aren't we glad that though his chosen people the people of Israel consistently failed him, regularly failed to live up to their end of the bargain, failed to follow God with their whole hearts. In fact, many times rejected God and his love. God still kept, he still kept his promise of redemption. And that the name of that promise and of the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Jesus. You know, I've had many instances over the last several years to challenge people with this idea, and it has proven to be God's ongoing challenge to me as well. We must do the right thing, the godly thing, the loving thing, and I'm not thinking necessarily of mushy, sentimental love, but agape love. We must do the right thing regardless of how someone else acts, regardless of how someone else responds, regardless of their appreciation or lack thereof regardless of whether they're right or wrong, regardless of how hard it is to do the right and godly thing. Why? Why? One answer might be because we are in Christ and because the name of the promise is Jesus. Our Lord and Savior Jesus is living proof of God's faithfulness, of God's promise-keeping. Again, let me read from the passage in 2 Corinthians that we read near the beginning. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, he set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. We hear guarantees all the time. So much so that we can become cynical about them. A promise from God is a statement we can depend on with absolute confidence. Here's just a few guarantees that we can count on. How about God's presence? He said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you in Hebrews 13.5. We can count on that because the name of the promise is Jesus. How about God's protection? I am your shield. We can rely on it because the name of the promise is Jesus. How about God's rest? Come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We can depend on this because the name of the promise is Jesus. How about God's cleansing? How about his forgiveness? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can know that this is true because the name of the promise is Jesus. How about God's goodness? No good thing will he withhold 
from those whose walk is blameless. We can be assured it's true because the name of the promise is Jesus. And then here's everybody's favorite verse. All things work together for good to them that love God. All things includes the things that we think are bad things as well as the things that we know are good things. We know that's true because the promise has a name and his name is Jesus. This Christmas season, we celebrate again the ultimate keeping of God's promise, the very embodiment of the promise of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's meditate on this amazing truth as we approach Christmas Day. In the midst of all the other things that go on during the Christmas season, let's think about this truth and celebrate the birth of the promise. The promise has a name, and the name of the promise is Jesus. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you are a promise-keeping God. We are so thankful, Father, that because you keep your promises, those of us who are in Christ can truly have eternity with you. Those of us who are in Christ can have our sins washed away, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We're so grateful for this, Father. We thank you that you're a promise-keeping God. We thank you that you love us. Father, help us to be a promise-keeping people in every arena in which we find ourselves, Father. May we uh, model the promise-keeping that you have modeled in Christ. We thank you for these truths, Lord. Help us to ponder these things and to meditate on these things during this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.